Thank you for listening to this first of several special episodes of the Corner Table podcast. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. I will be speaking to authors and commentators based around the world during the global pandemic lockdown. The first person I'll be speaking to is David Patrick Karakos, a journalist and author currently based in Athens. Hi. Hi, David. Hi. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's good to speak to you. I thought I would introduce you um, first and foremost. You're a journalist who was featured in pretty much every print and online publication under the sun at this point. And you are the author of uh, two books, Nuclear Iran and War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. And we find ourselves talking in a state of global lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. And so I am sort of rolling out this as a sort of a mini series to the Corner Table podcast, which ordinarily would involve you and I meeting at your chosen favorite restaurant. But we can talk about that later on in the conversation. You're based in Athens. Could you describe the situation in Greece at the moment? Um, Well, Greece has gone into, I mean, went into lockdown before Britain did. Uh, and now uh, it's, you know, in a really rather serious lockdown. You have to send a text to a number if you're leaving the house. You have to uh, or, or write down, write everything down, fill out a form. So, yeah, so it's, it's pretty serious now. Um, yeah, I mean, they're taking it very seriously and, and everyone's very worried. The streets of Athens are pretty deserted. Uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's very hard to see because... You know, you don't really know what's happening in the next street, really, unless, you know, you let you go for your walk. But um, certainly Athens is a ghost town now. And it was like that when I got back from London. So, you know, the Greeks are taking this very, very seriously. And you can't blame them. I mean, if they have a major, major health crisis, then I'm not sure the system can can, can tolerate it. I'm basing this off of a, a friend of mine who also lives in Athens, but he showed me a picture the other day of uh, an extraordinary movement permit. This is not a measure that has yet been tried out in the UK. You know, it's got your full name, your date of birth, uh, home address, and then a list of reasons why you would leave the home, uh, including going to the pharmacy or visiting a doctor, going to a supply store. And you have one of these every time you leave and it gets checked, presumably, outside on the streets. Um, is that is that familiar to you? Yeah, I mean, what I'm doing is I'm filling one out myself and I just have it on me along with a copy of my passport when I leave the house. Because you, you, most people are texting a number, but um, my English phone, I mean, for some reason, it's not recognising the, 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 the number that I have texted to, so I fill it out myself. Uh, but most people are texting a number when they do that. Right, I see. Okay. Yeah, I mean, as a journalist and as an author, I'm sure you're used to prolonged periods indoors uh, in isolation. Yeah, and it's easier for me than most. As I believe we spoke about last week, the point of this conversation is is to discuss how realistically the phenomenon of the coronavirus pandemic and the measures deployed across Western Europe in particular to tame its spread can be expected to instill lasting change across uh, Western societies. So I thought I'd start by asking your perspective on that um, as this has been evolving. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I, I mean, I just don't know. You know, part of me thinks that they can't do this for months because society will collapse but then a part of me thinks well if they have to do it medically what choice do they have uh, I mean what are the options I mean uh, could they release people who have had it before back in 
back into society. I don't know. In terms of changes, I mean, I've been thinking about, reading about, you know, the changes, epidemics in the history of wrought on us. And it's interesting because, you know, epidemics seem to have been decentered from history. Actually, they've played, you know, quite a, quite a, quite a big role in, in societal change, like the three big pandemics in the 19th century. They all led to sort of increases in state power, like, you know, like you look at cholera sort of came from India as a kind of price tag of, of empire. It didn't kill a huge amount, but the, the fear was huge. Uh, you know, it scarred cities, it scared people, and, you know, it led to the sanitation movement, you know. Um, you know, Edwin Chadwick to Charles, to Charles Dickens, you know, is a dominant force in the 19th century. And, you know, the modern sanitation comes basically uh, from the cholera epidemic, you know, the, the third pandemic of bubonic plague sort of put an end to the sort of piratical free reign of, of sort of trade in the Indian Ocean, that, you know, led to passports, modern customs assessment, all that sort of stuff. Then you look at the uh, the TB pandemic in the late 19th century, you know, the TB campaigns became really important, people listed them, and they, it laid the groundwork, essentially, for a lot of the welfare state. So you kind of wonder, you know, what's going to happen after all this is over, because certainly people now see that governments can guarantee wages and, and support people in, in, in to levels that they probably previously didn't think they could. So you wonder what's going to happen in terms of, of lasting changes. Set against that, I don't think one can ever underestimate the ability of people to forget and, you know, and things to go back to normal. You know, once we get let out, you know, it'll all be great. People can go a bit mad, you know, six weeks later. I mean, it will be, I, I imagine, you know, lockdown will be a distant memory. So, you know, it's, there's a lot to consider. There's a lot of stuff to think about. But in terms of, of what we actually know, I think um, it's all very uncertain. It does seem very much inevitable that people will welcome and rejoice in a return to normality. But as you say, the whole response from government has shown that despite the last 10 years, it can take on a protector role in crises. I wonder whether or not this is one feature that we can say will remain. I mean, look, I mean, theoretically, but the government has stepped in because, I mean, it has increased its its presence because we're in the middle of a, a massive pandemic. Um, but I mean, look, this is the point that I made about all the previous epidemics, right? Which is they've led to increases in state power mm. from sanitation to passports and customs and regimes to the welfare state. So if it follows the trend of the previous big ones, then the answer would be yes. Now, the response from the European Union is one I'm still trying to get my head around. I was hoping you could help me out with that. We know that Italy has suffered disproportionately from the virus and that northern creditor member states such as Germany and the Netherlands have shut down any possibility of debt neutralization across the EU through what have been termed corona bonds. Um, Italy has responded by saying this effectively confirms the absence of any solidarity within the union. Um, again, with a decade of austerity in hindsight and Germany's consistent block of a fiscal union, how badly does this bode for the EU? I mean, look, I think that there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tension in the EU now. A lot of tension. There's the belief that Germany didn't do enough to help the sort of the southern states, particularly Italy, as you say. I mean, in my latest piece, which uh, as I say, I wrote for The Spectator, I talk about this sort of propaganda war that's broken out because China with its so-called mask diplomacy is sending masks and, and Germany now is, 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 uh, is also sending ventilators and stuff and, and taking patients from the Alsace region and treating them from Alsace as over, overstretched hospitals. But there's serious stuff going on. You know, the whole Eurobonds issue is, 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 is splitting people apart. 
Um, I think that this is a real problem for the EU. Uh, I think it's a real problem uh, because Germany still sort of wants to have it one way and, and there's, there's a bit of an insurrection from a lot of the other EU states. You, you see that what Germany is doing is unfair and they don't think it's being sufficiently collegiate. So although this has been subsumed by the wider pandemic, and, I, and rightly so, I think this is a very big problem for the EU and one that could, you know, you know, could grow to an even bigger problem if it isn't managed carefully. And there's a lot of diplomacy going on about this right now. Well, if it, if it isn't managed carefully, say, what potentially could result? I mean, you can have a real schism in the EU. I mean, I think it's very, very serious. And it all depends just how bad this gets. Uh, if other countries start getting as bad as Italy and the EU, and Germany is not seen to be helping in, in, in a manner as, as, as befits its status within the EU and its economic power, then I think this could be serious problems for the EU. I think it's serious problems for the EU. But it's, as with everything now, we just don't know what's mm. going to happen. We just don't know how bad it's going to get. We just don't know how long it's going to last. I think there's serious problems. In, in Britain, it's already clear that this has forced government into a protector role, as I say, and that this is a very different change in tone from government. The language we've been getting here is of collective responsibility, of duty towards the community, of sacrificing one's own freedom to save lives. Um, it's suggestive of a society that is at least attempting to break with the kind of individualism best captured in videos of people fighting over toilet roll and move instead towards one that is perhaps more communitarian. I mean, look, you do see this. You see, uh, you know, I see I have friends, excuse me, um, I have friends that, you know, have, uh, are sort of doing shopping for elderly relatives, uh, elderly, elderly sort of neighbours. We see people sort of being more communal, in, you know, in their streets while keeping safe, observing safe social distance, of course. You saw the, the big clap for the NHS. So look, that would be a very, you know, a very nice thing to emerge. I mean, I mean, it depends where, perhaps in the smaller cities and towns it will. In London, I can't really see it lasting, to be honest. That you think that there is perhaps an inbuilt atomization to metropolitan centres that that means this is unlikely to take hold. I mean, the amount of people I've said that oh my god, I've met my neighbours now. I've lived here for X many years, and I finally met my neighbours. Well, once you've met your neighbours, you know you can't go back to never speaking to them, can you? So, I mean, certain things perhaps leave an imprint. Once you once you sort of start down a certain path, you can't really go back to the same degree. So perhaps once you know if 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 during this time in isolation in London, more people have met their neighbours, then, you know, as I say, you can't unmeet them. So, you know, perhaps there will be more for communitarian spirit at the local level. Very much hope so. I think it's something that we could do a lot with a lot more of in England and Britain. As I said, I think I looked at the previous pandemics and everyone has been followed by an increase in state power. So, as you say, I mean, it's, it would seem logical that it would happen this time too. Against this is the fact that we, we tend to forget stuff. We just do. We have very short memories. I mean, the fact that we we forgot about all the previous pandemics when they, the fact that they've been decentered so much from our historical understanding, the fact that we don't really understand the role of the TB pandemic in the welfare state, that we don't understand the role of the cholera epidemic in the sanitation movement, that we, you know, that we we don't, you know, we don't understand, you know, we don't see how important these things were to people like Dickens. Means just shows how far we've gone. You know, I mean, look, even during World War Two, look at the, the increased state powers you had, and then at the end of the war they were rolled back. Um, so, you know, we just don't know. Certainly, when all this ends, the government isn't going to be uh, isn't going to be, uh, you know, throwing money at us anytime soon because it's not going to have any money. Because it's, it's, this is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to start clawing stuff back in the form of taxation. But look, the thing is, I mean, before this, the left had more or less won the argument on financing. 
Boris Johnson was going left on spending. You know, they ditched plans to smash corporations acts. And they were looking at investing hugely in infrastructure, especially in the north, you know, to secure and to maintain the red wall that, uh, that, that it won from Labour. So I think that this is, you know, Jeremy Corbyn in his, in his petty and, and pathetic last speech in which he claimed that, you know, this shows Labour won the argument. I mean, obviously, it doesn't, uh, it's, uh, it's a pandemic, but actually, Boris had gone, the Tories had gone left on spending anyway. I think the left has, has, won the, has won the argument on spending even before this. You know, he went through 30 years of wealth creation in the West. Uh, now I think we're probably going to go through, uh, you know, a, a big period of wealth distribution. So I think that's where we're heading in terms of things. And I think the pandemic has probably just probably just sealed, um, sealed, sealed the deal in terms of, you know, I mean, it's really is left with spending plans now, but I think that the trend was already there. That was another thing that uh, I said we'd get on to talking about, the conspicuous confirmation bias that exists out there at the moment among commentators on this across the political spectrum, it seems. So in one of my columns recently, I talked about the thing about coronavirus because it's been used a lot by disinformation actors and propagandists. So, you know, it's been used by Iranians to say it's an Iranian, an American plot to divide Iran from its Shia brethren in Iraq. It's been used by Russia to sow division and discord by trying to get people to lose faith in their emergency services. It's used by China to prove that autocracy is superior to democracy. The thing about coronavirus is because it's invisible, you can put you can you can you can, you can put onto it any narrative you want or the face of any enemy you want. And it's much the same for your own political desires. You know, if you're a if you're you know a communist, you're like, well, there are no communists. You know, there are no capitalists in a pandemic. This is the way it's going to happen. If you are you know on the hard right, you're like, well, this is the kind of government surveillance and government monitoring of our activities that we need. You talked about the. Uh, the form that your, your Greek friend has, the permission form to, you know, to leave his own house. So, you know, because all these things are happening, you know, whatever, you know, whether you stand on the far left or the far right, as I've just said, you know, you can say, well, this is ushering, ushering in the type of politics that I want. Uh, and as you said, it's confirmation bias, and it's likely to all be speculative. I think what's going to happen is when this happens, all these things are going to roll back, and we're probably going to be left with, with, with this imprint of, an understanding and indeed appreciate an appreciation of increased state power that will probably remain. We're, we're in a situation right now that would seem the most perfect premise to a dystopian novel about how information spreads and gets mistreated when people who have access to more information than at any other time in history can't leave their homes. And you've, of course, written a lot about disinformation and the way that social networks can successfully be used to mislead populations at scale. Um, has this pandemic provoked you to think about this afresh? Well, look, I mean, what we've seen here is because, you know, this was an epidemic, but it was also an infodemic. We were, you know, we were deluged with information, most of which was poor quality. Because we had, you know, and I, again, I, I don't want to keep going on about my columns, but I'm writing a lot about this. And I wrote a column on the spectator in this, uh, about this, which is, you know, how this information actors are using it. Because if you are a disinformation actor, now is the perfect career. Coronavirus is a gift. First of all, it's, it's, it's got the world literally imprisoned in its homes. If you write about coronavirus, you're probably going to get read. So what they do is they piggyback onto coronavirus. That's why if you've got a disinformation narrative to pedal, you make it around coronavirus. You know, mm -hmm. the second thing is, as I say, you know, you know, when the world is suffering a case of mass pollution, your emissions go unnoticed. 
which is to say when the information ecosystem is so weakened because you know first of all there's people lying and second of all there's you know millions and millions of people who aren't lying but are peddling poor quality information because they're scared and because they simply don't know and they're speculating so we have disinformation which is the sort of malign spread of lies we have misinformation which is the spread of untruths but not deliberately you know so people are on twitter going well i've heard that but if you if you take this, then that, that makes you immune from coronavirus. You've got others going, is it true we're going to be locked down for a year? You know, all these people speculating, you know, desperate to try and help, to try and spread knowledge about the coronavirus. It's just wrong. So you have this tidal wave of misinformation. And it does show, and because we, you know, we have the ability to broadcast whatever information we receive, you know, more easily and literally with the click of a finger on our Twitter account or on our Facebook account or whatever, because we have that ability, misinformation spreads like it's never spread before. So you're seeing that, yes, when we've never had access to greater information, you know, we are in the midst of, a, of an information crisis due to coronavirus. It's very, very apparent. It's very, very clear. It's interesting that you use this word infodemic. It's not a term that I'd come across before in this, but it seems to me you're absolutely right that the world is enthroned to a biological virus that at the same time appears to have lowered our immunity to falsehood. Oh, absolutely. And that's because we're desperate. You know, we're desperate for facts. We're delicious. You know, you and I are discussing here and we, we both wonder how long is this going to last? How bad is it going to get? And I would say that, you know, we're probably at, at the um, at, at the higher end of, of, of the sort of the knowledge spectrum. You know, I'm not saying that we're on the ethanol or anything like that. Not at all. But probably just by the nature of what we do, we're more clued into things than, than many people. And obviously there are many people more clued in than us. And we don't really know what's going on. Um, again, I stress not that we're anything special or exceptional, but just by the nature of what we do as journalists, we, we have access to information, we have sources, etc. So, yeah, I mean, look, nobody knows. Uh, the governments don't know. Look at, look at the, the, the big U-turn that the government had to do on herd immunity. We're all just groping in the dark here. <clears throat> this kind of pandemic is unprecedented in the modern age. It really is. So... We're all relegated to the status of children, I suppose, in a sense, not really understanding, not really knowing and questioning it. I said I wouldn't take up too much of your time, David, and you mentioned at the very beginning um, China's culpability. So I'm curious to know here what you think that culpability consists in and what could be and should be done when the pandemic has subsided to come to some understanding about where responsibility lies and, and what could be done to ensure that this doesn't happen again. So this is a very interesting question. It's a very difficult one. Mm. So it's true that, that, you know, the virus began in China. Most likely we think, you know, because it, it, it jumped from human to, uh, from animal to human, you know, most likely because the standards of, you know, the food hygiene standards, especially in these, in these notorious wet markets in Wuhan, is pretty shoddy. The second thing we know pretty much is that China desperately covered it up. They imprisoned people who tried to speak out about it. They gagged whistleblowers and then it spread. You know, then they, they did sort of kick into gear and, and they did do a lot. Um, but I think that there has to be a reckoning at the end of all this. You know, the global economy is cracked. How many millions are going to be out of work? How many millions would have gone broke? How many thousands, and we hope it's only thousands, would have died? You know, how many, how, you know, how many marriages would have crumbled? How many... You know, how many people are suffering right now because they're sitting indoors? How many people aren't going to school? How many people lost their jobs? So, you know, there has to be some kind of reckoning. There has to be. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you can't, you know, 
to a degree, look, the Chinese didn't do it on purpose either. I mean, there's only so much you can do. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, this is China. Um, but I think that certain things are going to be done. Uh, I think there's going to be an understanding that we can't be so reliant on China, that we have to have more of a manufacturing base, that China, we've seen what China does, because as well as covering it up, as soon as, you know, it's got going, it's launched in a, it's launched in a, in a huge, huge um, um, propaganda offensive. It's really spreading a lot of disinformation. Um, so, um, you know, I think we need to have an admission of culpability. I mean, obviously China's not going to pay reparations. I mean, people, you know, people would ask for it symbolically, I think. But I think that's probably too much of a stretch. But I think we just have to understand that this shows, we have to use this as a lesson to say, look, this is the kind of state that China is. This is the kind of state it has always been under the CCP. We need to be aware of this and we need to take action accordingly. Perhaps Britain could rethink the Huawei, the Huawei 5G deal. Things like that, you know. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there's any point in trying to punish China or sanction it. Um, but look, I mean, I write, in, I write, in, I write in, in my piece, I say, look, you know, we ignored its threats over China 5G. We ignored China's imprisonment of the Uyghurs. You know, the truth is we've ignored pretty much every crime it's committed. If we ignore its role in coronavirus, you know, it will be clear that, you know, the West, not now, nor will it ever stand up to China. So I think that this is, this is you know, a, a critical point. And we have to just understand that this shows the type of state China is. We have to deal with it accordingly. And probably it's the type of state we don't want running out of 5G network. And it's the type of state that we don't need to be so reliant in terms of manufacturing and other supply chains. So I think that if we, if we can do that, then I think that, you know, in the face of what is a global tragedy, at least that might be one small thing we can do that, that, that is for everyone's benefit. When this is over, as eventually it will be, where will be the first place that you go to meet friends, eat yeah. out? Tell, tell us a little bit about your life, the life that you're missing in Athens, the life that you can't wait to get back well, to. God, I just love to go to the square. I live close to a square in central Athens. Just have to go to the square and have a coffee and then go to one of the many nice restaurants around here because Greece, is, as you know, has a lot of very nice restaurants, has a lot of very good food. I just want to go to the restaurant, sit down, have some food and just be around people. You know, I, I obviously want to go with some friends, but just to be nice and perhaps even, even get my traditional corner table in the restaurant, as I like to do. It's called Rosalia and it's, it's in Exaria in Athens. So I think I'd like to go there. And then, on, you know, I mean... I don't know because, you know, getting back to London would be great because that's my hometown, that's where I'm home city, that's where I'm from. You know, just start moving again, really. Just start getting out there and traveling again because, you know, life for me is traveling. Um, so, yeah, it'll be great. But, like, when we can first get out and start mingling again, wow, that will be, that will be someday. <laughs> that will be someday. Well, when you do make it back to London, I'll, I'll be in touch and maybe we can go and, uh, and have lunch or a coffee somewhere. I appreciate the fact that, very few can really say with any certainty where all this is going, but they were great answers. Thank you so much. Look, it was a pleasure to be on. And yeah, let's, let's definitely have lunch one day. That would be great. All right. Thanks very much, David. Enjoy the rest of your day. And you. Cheers, Jack. Thank you.